0: Hello, you're listening to New Books in History on the New Books Network. I'm Joshua, host of the program. Today we've got quite a treat for our listeners because not only do we have a great book lined up for the episode, we also have two people here with us to tell us all about it. Now when the Red Atlas was published first in 2017, it made waves around the world enjoying widespread coverage on the media and spawning a wider interest among the general public in Cold War era maps produced by the Soviet Union. This Soviet mapping program was one of the most ambitious of its kind What was also an incredibly secretive endeavour, which only came to light thanks to the sleuthing of John Davis, a lifelong map collector, and Alex Kent, a specialist in cartography. In addition to curating an astounding collection of over 350 extracts from this Soviet map collection, the book also discusses the origins, details, and applications of these maps both during and after the Cold War. Well, I can only apologise that it took us so long to find you and feature your work on our channel, but nonetheless, we're here today, and we're very happy to have you both here with us. So a warm welcome to you both. Thank you. Let's start with a few questions about yourselves. John, you describe yourself as a lifelong map collector. When, when did you begin to take such an interest in maps and and
2: map collecting? Hi, I've been a map enthusiast
0: since childhood. I still have
2: maps that I drew at the age of five. There's no explaining where this comes from. It's just the case. But my other interests uh, particularly include hiking, travel and transport. So very much map using as well as map collecting. They go they go hand in hand and um, each each drives the other interest. Professionally, I designed management information systems as a career and it was only after retirement about 15 years ago uh, did I start serious research and writing. I, I live in London and I uh, host Soviet the, the website Sovietmatch.com
0: Oh that's wonderful and and Alex you are you come from a slightly more academic background. Do you, think it was always, do you think it was written in the stars that you would pursue a career in, in cartography? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. Uh, who knows? Who knows? It's a very good idea. I mean, ultimately, I suppose, like John, I've been fascinated by maps, you know, from the very beginning. And again, uh, during maps, you know, as a primary school, I remember drawing a map of the school. I've lost it. I don't know where it's gone, but uh, it'd be good to find it one day. But I think um, from quite an early age, I had a, a real sense of... I guess, the, if you like, the genius of, of cartography in that it combines uh, something that is useful with something that's beautiful. And I think it combines also arts and science and also technology. And when I first was looking at... Um, uh, an academic subject to study at university. I was feeling that uh, I was a geographer, perhaps more than anything else, but specifically a, a cartographer. And at the time, Oxford Brookes University in the UK was the only place that offered a degree in this subject, in cartography and geography, which is what I took. And uh, really, I, I kind of really got on with uh, with studying mapping from there onwards. I think, and um, especially. I think the, the fact that it combines arts and sciences uh, so well, and maybe you use perhaps both sides of your brain a little bit, maybe that also helps. But I think, yes, there's a real, uh, a real sense of, uh, of wonder that you can get by looking at maps and of the, the way that you can just travel just by looking at a map, I think.
0: Of course, you're both interested, no doubt, in Soviet maps, but are there any other areas of cartography or map making or map collecting that you are equally, if not perhaps more passionate about?
2: The thing that brought us together, in fact, was a shared interest of Ordnance Survey maps because we're both members of the Charles Close Society for the study of Ordnance Survey maps. And that's where you meet other map enthusiasts. And for for Britons, the uh, Ordnance Survey obviously covers the country and unites us all. But everybody who loves Ordnance Survey maps inevitably loves other kinds of maps. So many strands of map interest in Britain come together under the... uh, the, the Charlesworth Society, uh, which has been instrumental, as you'll see when we talk about how we went about the process, uh, that society has been instrumental in our in the whole um, creation of this book, the whole evolution.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, for me, uh, that's an interesting question because um, I was always quite fascinated when um, we used to go on day trips to France, for example, uh, when I was uh, a child. That the maps that you would see of the French countryside were very different to those that you would get, uh, let's say, within the UK, obviously Ordnance Survey, uh, the the official mapper of Great Britain. And I think that really uh, inspired me to think about investigating why it is that different countries and cultures map in different ways. Uh, And that's been a sort of an ongoing fascination. So that was really the topic of my PhD, um, comparing topographic maps of uh, European countries, and trying to understand the stylistic diversity that you see in the, in the cartographic symbology, that I think there would be the assumption that within Europe, everywhere would just look the same and be mapped in the same way, but actually there's a huge amount of difference, and uh, that sort of really inspired me. So rather, I suppose, unlike a lot of, uh, well, Carter fans, I guess, people that, that collect maps, uh, I'm quite into 20th century mapping as opposed to much more historical mapping, but I still find it all fascinating nonetheless.
0: And let's talk about how this project began proper. You both encountered these maps while in former Soviet Republics, John, if I'm not wrong, in Latvia and Alex in Kazakhstan. Talk us through how that happened, how you first encountered these maps. Okay, yeah, I'll start with a bit of prehistory, as we've got it.
2: On the collapse of the USSR, these previously unknown secret maps were acquired by a Latvian map publisher, and he showed them at the 1993 Cologne Book Fair That was the first time anybody in the West had any awareness of these. And following that, copies were bought by various British libraries and at least one British map dealer. But I personally didn't know anything about it at that time. My discovery didn't come until the early 2000s when I was in Latvia and I saw them on sale in that very Latvian map shop. So I started collecting and researching them then on my trips to Latvia. And by 2005, I started publishing articles in Sheetline. Sheetline is the journal of the Charles Close Society for Study of Ordnance Survey Maps. Uh, The journal comes out three times a year and covers a range of mapping interests. And I wrote two two articles in that. And then at the same time, I started the website, sovietmaps.com. 2006, I organized a Charles Close Society visit to Latvia to learn more about them, to, to meet, them, to see the factory where they've been produced and meet the people who discovered them and liberated them. And Alex, who'd had his own separate journey up to that point, joined this trip. Uh, we instantly clicked and realized that from then on, we would share our knowledge and share our research. Uh, it was a very happy meeting and a very happy combination of. Very different talents, uh, but it, it, it's been successful. Alex, you have a, your own version of that.
1: Yeah, I guess my, as you say, my journey was a slightly different one, and uh, funny enough, it culminated in that uh, that trip to Latvia, which was uh, a real eye opener. But for me, it all really started in two thousand and one uh, when I went to Kazakhstan for a trekking holiday with my then uh, girlfriend and. Uh, we sort of, in one way or another, sort of got a tip-off, basically, that while we were in Kazakhstan, uh, staying in Almaty, that we ought to have a look at a map shop that was there. And so we uh, got away to this, had a look, and I can only describe really what I found was a sort of Aladdin's cave of uh, <laughs> of Soviet maps. And of course, this was really the first time that I'd seen them, so again, this is 2001, and... I noticed that actually before too long my Cyrillic was a little bit rusty it still is not that fantastic but I noticed that there were these maps of places like Salt Lake City and uh, New York and I thought what was the Soviet Union doing mapping these places in such high levels of detail so I thought this was really quite interesting and I came away really from that map shop with as, as many maps as I could carry which wasn't a huge amount and really then uh, continued working on my PhD but it was not until I saw John's articles uh, in sheet lines uh, on the mapping of Britain by the Soviet Union that I thought oh, actually there is something in this that maybe uh, does need to be discovered and I think one of the great things about uh, getting together with John is that actually we realised that we were looking at this same huge mapping enterprise but from different angles uh John looking at it from the Latvian angle from the city plans and myself looking at it from uh the Kazakhstan perspective if you like uh through these uh, topographic maps so actually yes we discovered fairly early on that we were sort of sitting on top of something uh, pretty groundbreaking as a story and really that merited further uh, investigation So that's kind of what we did. And we we're both very enthusiastic um, individuals. And I think we kind of spur each other on in terms of that enthusiasm. So, yes, it has been a very, uh, very fruitful and fantastic collaboration. It's a beautiful story.
0: (laughs) Um, You talk about how you both approach these maps from from different perspectives. And it reminds me that you're both from slightly different professional and personal backgrounds. And surely that sort of shapes the set of skills and the repertoires of experience that you each bring to the table. Have such differences shaped the way you've approached the subject matter as a team? Yeah, inevitably. Um,
2: yeah, our, the, what happened was we, when, as we got together, we realised that this we were breaking new ground. Nothing, no, no research had been published about these these maps. Uh, we didn't quite know how we were going to do it, but we realised there was a book here, and bringing together. So Alex is forensic or uh, academic approach and my sort of rather free-ranging but energetic approach, let's call it, we could could bring a lot of stuff together. We approached numerous British publishers. uh, And of course, publishers are inundated with proposals and offers and manuscripts and so on. There was nothing made ours stand out and we couldn't get any publisher interested at all. Until in 2015, at Wired.com, picked up, well, picked up essentially my website, and from that developed the whole story and investigated the story more fully. And Wired did a brilliant job. They published a major story in 2015. That went global, it went worldwide enthusiasm for that. And that publicity really broke, broke the back of it for us. And after quite a lot of toing and fro and de- various possibilities, University of Chicago Press came forward uh, commissioned the book. Uh, at that time, of course, it didn't have a name, but by t- 2017, it was published as The Red Atlas uh, and, you know, has uh, been a steady seller ever since. So that's the story of um, how we got, how the book came to be. Alex, you have something to add on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. I think um, what is very interesting as that question, you know, are different approaches. And I think... Um, that's one reason why this has been a very successful collaboration, um, because there are different skills and talents that we uh, both bring to this project. And I think one thing that John is uh, he's being very modest, but one thing that he's very, very good at is the uh, level of knowledge he has of ordnance survey mapping and the ability to compare in uh, fantastic detail the Soviet mapping with the ordnance survey mapping. So that sort of real kind of detective style uh, approach of trying to see, for example, how different sources were put together and that sort of thing, really I think has uh, has been the the kind of the, the foundation of a lot of the work that we've done. I guess what, what I, I bring and what I'm quite interested in is the wider stories of uh, geopolitics, so thinking about uh, how these maps fit into that wider political story of the Soviet Union uh, and what they were trying to achieve, and also from a cartographic background, looking at what the significance of the maps um, is in terms of their design, and really this whole question of um, overcoming the problem, which is what they were doing, or meeting the, the challenges, let's say, of mapping the globe, and how you devise and develop symbology, cartographic symbology, to uh, effectively map any particular habitat on the earth and ensure that that's communicated effectively to uh, to the user. So that's sort of wider fitting in of where these maps uh, align, if you like, to cartographic theory and also to geopolitics. That's something that I uh, like to, to bring in. But yes, in a way, I think it's a, you know that's one of the reasons why there's a, a very good set of angles and uh, skills that we bring to this.
0: <laughs> it's wonderful. And we'll get to talk in detail about your conclusions, but I was wondering just when you first encountered these maps, what was your initial reaction? Was it a was sort of awe? Was there a tinge of fear that comes with the realisation that at the very height of the Cold War, the people whom you perceived to be you know, the enemy, they, they, they knew where you lived, they knew your street, your city, in such detail? Yeah,
2: the reaction was astonishment, amazement and fascination. All of those things you, you you encounter something which is at the same time familiar and totally unfamiliar. You can recognize the terrain from looking at a map, but all the names are in Cyrillic. Where on earth is this place? Gosh, it's my house. You know, it's it's, it's amazing. And and the, why on earth was that done? So immediately the questions come pouring into your head as soon as you saw them. It was an irresistible to me an irresistible uh, topic as soon as you've realized the extent of because any map you look at. This wasn't a one-off. This is part of a huge comprehensive scheme. So that made it, you know, a massive undertaking. And you just had to get under the skin of it. You just had to start digging and see. We, we encountered, of course, many, many difficulties along the way. So I'll just talk a little bit about that. Um, the most obvious difficulty was the complete unavailability of anybody who in any way been associated with the production of these maps. I mean, partly, of course, because of massive secrecy in the Soviet Union or ex-Soviet Union, Russian Federation, but it, it, it carries forward. And, of course, also because of the age, the time these maps were being made in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, people involved would have retired or died, but anyway, weren't going to say anything. So you would no access to the sources. The language barrier was another major problem. Neither of us is a Russian speaker. Uh, We can struggle with the Cyrillic and there's things like Google Translate around. But nonetheless, that that certainly puts a a barrier. It makes it much slower to study anything and and deal with it. So the, the approach we took was to say the evidence we have is the map itself. Let's look at each map we've got and derive as much as possible information from that map as to which might betray its source. Let's look at anything which gives any hints to where the information on this map came from. Was it copied from a local map? Was it uh, done from a spy satellite? How was it done? And so very forensically, in very great detail, we looked at every map we could get our hands on and examined in close detail, this little this piece of road or this little building here, how did they know about that? The name of this park or the name of this suburb, how do they know that? And gradually, we built up, we saw patterns, and we gradually began to build up our theories of how these maps were done, and then, you know, further information would challenge that theory or confirm it. So bit by bit, comparing the Soviet maps against anything else we could find, essentially maps, guidebooks, directories, anything you could find, we deduced what, what the compilers were working from. We also had another benefit was our Latvian contacts. By then, we'd, become, we'd shared with the people in Latvia from whom we'd acquired the maps uh, what we were doing, and they were extremely helpful. They had a little bit of first-hand knowledge in various aspects that was helpful to us. And the third angle that was extremely helpful was the response to the Wired uh, story, where people who had... Also, Lycos acquired these maps, but had used them professionally for scientific or exploratory purposes around the world. We got some astonishing stories, and we repeat them in the book. Alex, you probably want to add. Yeah, some.
1: thanks. Yeah, I think um, I, I don't think I'll ever really forget finding those uh, those first maps uh, for the first time that I saw. I think again that um, sense of bewilderment, really, and I think what. Um, You know, in a way, that sort of characterises your whole impression of this Soviet mapping project, because you are blown away by the detail in which these places were mapped. Uh, The fact that you're looking at these places that that are familiar to you, but they're mapped in a very, very different way. So that portrayal is very different. So you see the familiar through sort of unfamiliar eyes, if you like, which is very, uh, very strange. And I think, again, just the extent that you get the sense of this sort of global extent of this. So you understand the huge effort that would have gone into this project. So I think, you know, it really is a sense of bewilderment and a sense that really it's like, you know, you're sort of standing at the foot of a glacier sort of thing. You know, it's absolutely huge. It's really difficult to uh, sort of, well, appreciate in terms of the size, depth, scope, whatever volume of what it is you're looking at. So I think that that is a key um, element of how you encounter and uh, sort of um, appreciate the, these maps, really, I suppose. I think, you know, just adding a little bit from what John was saying, um, certainly in terms of. Uh, the difficulties, yes. I mean, this is uh, you know, cartography is a, a language in a way. So in a way, we can understand the language of the maps um, because that's what symbology is all about. But of course, there are challenges with learning Cyrillic, and uh, I think we're better now than we were when we started, which is good. But I think also there are challenges in terms of. Um, people perhaps denying the existence of these maps as well there are libraries that we've been to for example where we know that they exist in the libraries um but actually the staff have said well these maps don't exist sort of thing so uh in a way that you do sometimes come up against this sort of attitude perhaps of wanting to deny that they exist and again we have to recognize too that um for many people these are secret documents and were secret documents and so denying their existence is is part of, if you like, the uh, the production process and of that regime. So while we're looking at these through sort of fresh, uh, in a way, western eyes, um, those that were involved in the production and maybe curatorship of these maps would take a very different view of them as, as being once secret state documents. So we have to be sensitive of that as well. But our, our whole approach really is one of uh, sort of one-day you know, bewilderment, wonder and celebrating these maps as a, a feat of cartography rather than anything else. That's what sort of underpins the whole endeavour, I think.
0: Was there any, ever any active opposition to you pursuing you know, this, this line of research? Did anyone go, look, you shouldn't be looking into these maps, it could be dangerous?
2: We didn't have any contact with anybody who might have said that the, the soviet union or the russian federation might have been unhappy but they didn't tell us they weren't the potential difficulty came from uh, copyright infringement the, the the copyright status of the match is uncertain and one of the difficulties that we had when talking to publishers was well can we reproduce these so that was a, you know practical difficulty uh, and chicago convinced themselves that that wasn't a problem so they got on with it but yeah we we did encounter this as a potential difficulty uh, but but it was overcome by the publisher yeah nobody, I mean, nobody, nobody nobody said to us you can yeah these are secret or you can't do it i mean that 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 uh, that just didn't happen
1: yeah, I think one of the um, perhaps interesting encounters we had is when we presented um, a talk on these maps for the first time at the international conference on the history of cartography in Moscow uh, in 2011 at uh, I think it's Pashkov House just by the Kremlin and. Um, Of course, at this time, this is well before the Red Atlas and when John and I were starting to pull together our our major findings, really. And we were hoping that at that um, talk we may get some... Uh, insights perhaps from the audience from the the Russian academics that were in the audience really to to perhaps give us a, a sense of what was going on with these maps because we were just obviously looking at these from an external perspective and only really scratching the surface but actually we we didn't get anywhere with that in terms of people coming forward apart from questions about where we got the maps rather than anything else so again I suppose you know, we were maybe expecting a little bit too much that we would, we would hear something from them. But really, yes, I think that that sense of um, uh, state secrecy and so on of the generations that were involved in the creation of these maps, I think that very much is uh, possessed. And it's, pr- it's unrealistic to assume that that would uh, not apply, of course, when I'm sure if you look at anywhere in the UK and US and any other state doing this sort of secret mapping on behalf of the state would we expect any different from them so really um, you know you could say actually we were expecting a lot but in a way it was a pity that we didn't hear too much from them
0: well a lot's been said about these interesting maps how you encountered them you know the, the sort of trouble they've brought you but we haven't quite delved into the finer details of this ambitious mapping project could we perhaps just begin by discussing the the history of of soviet and russian cartographic tradition and how that influence the, the creation of this mapping program?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, we don't have uh, two weeks to talk about this. So, we'll, <laughs> you know, we can be brief. But I think it's it's fair to say that the Russians in general have a very strong tr- tradition of military mapping um, that's been really influenced by other uh, countries mapping as well, particularly French and German. But we could say, if we're looking at the Soviet mapping, that when we have the really the establishment of the, the Soviet Union in the early nineteen twenties, could say specifically nineteen twenty two, we have the really the establishment of a new state mapping program that really looked to map the vast territories of the uh, of the Soviet Union. And it's important to bear in mind that all the way through uh, this process. You know, uh, we should look at maps, particularly state maps, as a way of um, sort of gaining power, if you like, over the state territory, power and control. So the first thing you really want to do, a little bit like the the Doomsday book, if you like, in... Sort of uh, William the First time in 1066 and so on until 86 is really to sort of get an inventory of what actually is within the state, and I think that's important to bear in mind. So the Soviet Union embarked on a huge map making initiative, topographic map making. Uh, this is before World War Two, of course, um, effectively to ensure that the resources of the state could be brought under control but also to um, support infrastructure development, all sorts of building projects and so on. But I think that the key thing to bear in mind is that when we got to World War II, the Soviet Union felt that it was pretty much undermined in terms of the mapping capability coming up against the Germans. So you might remember the Germans invaded Russia, uh, Operation Barbarossa, of course in 1941, and effectively then that kind of Kick started if you like the the new Soviet um, mapping project really, uh, even though slightly before that it would got going 1940 and that. Really, then, uh, led to not only an increased detail and intention in terms of the level of mapping and uh, detailed mapping, but also more critically in terms of um, the mapping of cities and how you conduct uh, urban combat and urban warfare, which was, of course, pretty rife in the uh, in the Eastern Front, as we called it. So, the cre- the creation of the um, the Soviet plan of Berlin, really in response to the, the German plan of Moscow, if you like, looking towards this uh, drive the counter offensive all the way back to, to Berlin at the end of World War II, that's really where a lot of the Soviet mapping um, ideology comes from, I think. And effectively, from that period onwards, uh, we of course had Stalin in control. The idea then to really expand, not just the mapping of the Soviet Union which was uh, completed 1-100,000 to scale in the 1950s but also to expand that to, to other territories in Western Europe and beyond we do know that there was some mapping of Western Europe before World War 2 but as a global endeavour, a global initiative we start to see uh, city plans for example of uh, cities in Iran towards the end of the 1940s and uh, even within Britain by the time we got to the 1950s so we see this as a global project and so that really started to develop and again uh, i think it's fair to say i mean we can talk about it a lot more but it's fair to say that by the time we got to around about the 1960s with uh, increasing reliance on, on satellite mapping that actually um we start to see satellites being used and therefore the the number of maps being created particularly um Topographic maps and city plans uh, really increasing, and then once we got to the um, the strategic arms limitation talks, there was of course the need to make sure that the USA was conforming to the uh, the idea of non proliferation of their nuclear weapons. So again, there was an idea to ensure that these uh, places were mapped as much as possible. So. This whole idea of power and control, not only of your own territory but of your adversary, is something that I think is is permeating throughout the whole uh, the whole enterprise. But John may well have some more points to add. That's just a, a very brief potted in history from me, but uh, John will know some more, I think, as well. No, I'm, I'm nothing to add to that. Brilliant okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure, resume. Really, really
0: yeah. 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 Perhaps you could just. Perhaps you could give us an idea of, of the scope of this project. You've talked about, you know, which areas were mapped, but maybe what, what specific details were captured in each map?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's, again, maybe one of the, the hardest things to grasp, perhaps when we're just listening to uh, to what this all means as opposed to seeing in front of us. But I think the, the key thing to bear in mind is that... Um, Certainly, if you look at, say, the city plans, so these were about, of we know, about 2,000 cities or 2,500 now, we know, cities around the world that were mapped uh, in a high level of detail. So that would include the terrain. Uh, It would include the roads, street names as well, where applicable, and, of course, things like hydrology and uh, the vegetation cover. But also, more importantly, you would have Um, an identification of strategic objects or important objects, and those would be classified according to whether they're militarily significant or industrial or uh, administrative buildings or uh, communications buildings, for example, all colour-coded and numbered in a key so they would be identified. So to give you an idea of this, you would have factories that would be numbered, and in the key it would tell you sometimes the name of the factory and what that um, factory produced, whether it was something like, for example, um, car parts or uh, or transformers or something along those lines. So really an astonishing level of detail about the function of various buildings as opposed to just what they look like. And I think it's important to bear in mind that what we see in these maps are um, sort of like a propensity, really, to map industry and transport. So particularly if you've got... Um, Uh, say, disused railways and sometimes disused mines and uh, tram lines, that sort of thing. Sometimes you see these appear on these maps uh, long after they've actually fallen out of use. So there's a lot of detail that you would get that you wouldn't actually sometimes find on, uh, let's say, Ordnance Survey mapping that we have in the UK or Great Britain. So actually, they can be a very useful resource in themselves for a lot of this detail so that' give you a, a bit of an idea uh, John has been doing a lot of work in terms of comparing some of these uh, buildings and the details that that you can find um, in comparison with uh, with a native mapping so he might have some views on what he's been doing with that
2: yeah I mean I, I just point out we talk about these maps as a sort of gen- generic thing there's many different kinds of these maps as we're alluding to the, the topographic series, are a continuous coverage and they pretty much span certainly the uh the land surface of the world as far as we can see and th- that's continuous coverage at f- probably four or five different scales from one to a million down to about one to or one to a hundred thousand then you've got the city plans which are at one to twenty five thousand or one to ten thousand and they centered on individual cities and there must be at least two or three thousand of these of different cities around the world and they were done more than once so this wasn't a one-off project then you've got things like aeronavigation navigation maps which have small scale of very large areas on different projections so it's another whole map series then you've got the maps that they made for the civil authorities throughout the uh, soviet union so they couldn't use the military versions because there was too much information and there were coordinates so then the whole mapping project, as far as USSR is concerned, is repeated with maps that, where the grid is stripped off. And then you've got a whole lot of special maps for different particular purposes. So the, the, the list of what's possible was an enormous list of, of maps. And, of course, we just talk about the maps and we tend to be referring to many different sorts of things. Uh, the, one, the, the, the ones where we found the greatest interest, I think, are the ones that Alex was mainly referring to, City plans because they're at the largest scale and they're of uh, intensive urban areas where there, are, of course, much more information uh, and there's much more um, activity going on and there's more published material that we can t- t- test against. But it is worth mentioning. I mean, what this inventory must have been two or three million different maps. We, we'll never know how many, but you know, it's phenomenal. Uh, and, and 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 then we've got the m- the moon and outer space and and the o- oceans and uh, you know it''s, it's endless
0: <laughs> we'll never we'll never know do you think you have any idea of what proportion of, of these maps are available in the public domain is it is it a tiny. tiny.
2: <laughs> we know we can tell the gaps because if we look just in a small scale we can look at maps of britain uh, the British city plans, and we can we have identified hundred different British cities, but some major British cities or towns are not. We don't have them, so they would obviously have been mapped. Whether we'll ever find them, it's it's pure chance, really. What has survived? The intention on the collapse of the Soviet Union, the intention was that these would be destroyed, or, or stored very securely and very secretly. It's accidental on the part of the authorities that they ever escaped at all. So only a relatively small amount of what was published has ever been discovered. And, and it's unlikely, unless there's some great openness or glasnost in the future, it's unlikely that they ever will be released. So we're working on really, uh, you know, hands tied behind our back or half, half one eye shut. We don't know. We don't know what we don't know but we can tell from the things we
0: do know. a hell of a lot we don't know. I mean, you, you say you're working with very little, but it, it, it still baffles me, the level of detail and the sheer breadth of cartographic knowledge that the, the Soviets sought to acquire. I mean, surely if large cities like New York, London, Shanghai, but you also have small market towns. In your book, you mentioned Gainsborough in, in Lincolnshire. Even even my home of Singapore is, was mapped. Of, and it's They're so small. many miles away from...
2: That's why we know that there is so many missing. Because if you've done a map of Gainsborough or done relatively small, relatively insignificant economically, um, then you wouldn't have done them unless many more important places, major ports and industrial areas, had been mapped. And so maps, we we don't have a map of Kingston on Hull. We don't have a map of Limerick or Cork. These are major places, very important places. They would have been done. So, you know, we know there's a lot we don't know. And also, we also know for about three or four British cities, we've a version of the map in the 1970s and another map in the 1980s. Now, you know, those ones we have are not very important places. Halifax is one of them, Luton is another. They're not major, major conurbations. So it's evident to us that this process, you know, there's an awful lot was done and it was done again, perhaps 10 years later, perhaps it was done Three times, we don't know. Uh, So the little bits, it's tantalising, the little glimpses we have of what we have and what you can deduce or reasonably deduce from that about the things that that are missing. It's the iceberg. We don't know what's under the water.
0: I want to look back to something that Alex mentioned earlier about comparing British Ordnance Survey maps with, with these Soviet maps. And of course, this is something that you're both quite familiar with. In terms of both accuracy and in terms of details that were captured, how would you compare these these two projects?
1: Yeah, OK. I mean, it, John can tell you about specific examples. I think, in general, um, that's a very uh, a very good question in terms of accuracy and so on. I mean, the, the accuracy tests that, that we've done uh, and that others have done that we, we've seen as well show that the Soviet maps are accurate. But, of course... Um, you know, we've only tested a very, very small number, and a small fraction of what is absolutely out there. So it's, it's, you know, it's a huge amount. I suppose what uh, is the the curious side of this is to think, um, not necessarily in terms of the positional accuracy, but in terms of uh, or the spatial accuracy, but in terms of the topographic accuracy. In other words, how various features are described and identified, and how uh, how correct that is, for example. Now when we look at these, for example, the city plans, and that's something that uh, you've already mentioned, one of the curiosities that we see is where you have particular buildings that are misclassified as maybe uh, military buildings, or whether they've been mislabeled, of course, there are lots of examples of that. Um, And I think Sometimes it's worth remembering, even though it's difficult, it's worth remembering that these maps were compiled in a non-digital era, mostly. And of course, the errors that we see prove that they're made by humans. And of course, that... You know, we've got this sense that actually you look at a map and it's uh, sort of quite impartial, if you like. But actually, they were all created by people. So, um, in a way, it's not that we like to sort of poke fun at them and laugh at them, but actually to marvel at what was achieved, given the very little amount of information they probably had, and obviously then also to celebrate the fact that uh, that these are these are products of uh, of humans, if you like. These are these are cartographic creations. But I know John has been doing some very detailed work on finding some. Of the specific uh, misclassifications and so on, I'm sure you can tell you some more about those.
2: Well, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of generalise first and say, yeah. yes, they they've taken information from Ordnance Survey, but they certainly haven't copied Ordnance Survey maps. And one possible reason for that is a culture of secrecy in the Soviet Union. If a map was in the public domain, it necessarily had been falsified. You couldn't; it that was it would not have been in the public domain without being falsified. So, that kind of assumption that publicly freely available mapping in Britain is, is, is uh, in some way uh, falsified would have underlain <coughs> the cartographer's assumption. So, they wouldn't, they wouldn't take an ordinary survey map and verbatim print, uh, copy everything from it. They would have verified the information they would have, and, and certainly drawn it in their own style. And they've collected as much information as they possibly could from the Ordnance Survey and from many other sources because Ordnance Survey maps, for example, don't show, don't list factories and what, what they produce. So they've collected many sorts of information and they've, made their, they've done their best to interpret it and to understand it and present it in a standardised format. But occasionally they misunderstand and they get things slightly wrong. And again, those, those errors are quite useful to us because an error can show that somebody has tried, you know, it doesn't match any particular source. So somebody's thought about this and they've, and they've thought wrongly. So that's a fascinating, as Alex says, it shows that pe- it's people doing this, it's not machines doing it. And people have taken the sources and often, of course, with with contemporary maps, you might find discrepancies, you might find slight differences between maps, certainly maps of different ages or maps for different purposes. And so they will have interpreted the best they can, and that's been the fun we've had. Really, is looking and almost getting into the brain of the cartographer, the compiler, and saying, "I know, I know what he was thinking here." No, that's
1: yeah. I suppose more more generally, I mean, that's a very uh, yeah, very interesting point. I think um, you know your question again, Joshua, about uh, comparisons and so on. I think. The other thing to bear in mind is the, the overall strategy and purpose of uh, of these maps and what they're about. And again, in that comparison with Ordnance Survey, well, Ordnance Survey, of course, has got historic uh, origins, but there are also military origins as well. And I think it's important to bear in mind that um, with the Soviet maps, as with Ordnance Survey mapping, again, where topography is so important and... Uh, in a way, sort of a general balance of so many themes. Actually, it's very difficult to isolate a single purpose for which these maps could have been put. So, quite often, people look at these and they'll say, "Oh, these are they invasion plans specifically?" And you know, that's a very tempting question to ask when you look at these Soviet maps, of course. But you know, we would say, "Well, actually, they they don't seem to be have have been." Um, designed for any one purpose in particular. They much more follow this sort of overall topographic mapping tradition of trying to gather as much information as possible and map it in a comprehensive and uh, well-designed way so that it was clear and it was understandable and so on. So it's not as if they were being uh, put to a particular purpose in mind, but rather it was a case of gathering as much intelligence and geographic intelligence really as possible. And remember, this is an age of paper. And then putting that on the map, remember that paper would have been the the medium through which you would have stored, recorded, and presented the information. Of course, these days with the GIS, Geographical Information System, Digital Map, you could store different types of information in layers and just put on what you want to see at a time but at that era of course with paper you'd have to show everything simultaneously so really the paper is a way of holding it all together so I think it's it's worth remembering again there is a similar tradition going on in terms of gathering information and putting it on the map making sure that it's all legible and, uh, and visible.
2: I'd also just point out that the, the, the maps the maps they're producing at any particular uh, cartographic depot in Russia were covering many different countries. And the source materials would have been very different. So we talk about maps of Britain, they would have looked at ordinary survey maps. However, you're doing France, you're doing, well, the rest of the world. So the source material is very different. And what they're trying to do is compile maps that look the same. Look the same as each other, not look the same as the source material. So it, it, it uh, disguises where the source material was, which will have been very varying quality and very varying reliability. But they've they've had to produce maps of a, of a consistent style, design, and accuracy from very varying uh, sources. You know, American mapping is, is different from British mapping, and so on, and so on.
0: You, you two make a very good point about how remarkable this achievement was. I think it's it's a bit difficult, I think, this, in this day and age, to appreciate the sheer scale of this achievement. Today I can open, you know, Google Maps on my phone, and I can find everything I need there. But back in the day, I suppose this must have been an incredibly significant achievement. Mm.
2: There would be no, yes, absolutely that. that We have to keep reminding people, you you can't just look at Google Maps. You couldn't just look at Google Maps. Satellite imagery was not available to anybody other than the military. So it, it's an astonishing, yeah, and people forget that. In, I, think, in today. I, th-
1: I think another uh, illustration of that is if you look at, for example... Uh, a place relatively close to me, Dover in uh, in Kent, and the Soviet map of Dover. And you have a look at that map and you compare it with the um, the map that was made by the um, German um, army in terms of their uh, invasion plans, the Planhef plans for uh, invasion of Britain in uh, World War II. And you have a look at the process and the approach that they took, which was effectively to take a uh, an ordnance survey plan of the town at um, six inches to the mile, and then photographically enlarge it to a metric scale of one to ten thousand, and then to annotate it with the various objects that they thought were strategically important, like barracks and so on. Well, if you compare that with the Soviet map, you see that the Soviet map has been comprehensively remapped. So it was a new map created specifically. And exclusively by the Soviet Union. So the contours, for example, are present. They haven't been copied. uh, Neither of the cliff drawings, for example. And again, although some of these strategic objects are the same, and maybe they have been um, copied from the German map, in terms of the actual terrain that has not been copied. Now, mapping contours, creating those, takes a huge amount of time and effort. And if you wanted to cut corners in any sort of map production, you would simply copy that terrain because you would say, well, that doesn't really change that much anyway. So, you know let's speed things up by using what's already there in terms of that base map and and copying that over. But actually, the Soviet map has been created from scratch. So you can see, even from that map of a very uh, relatively small place, the amount of effort that's gone into creating uh, certainly even the town plans, let alone the topographic map series of the different scales that we mentioned earlier.
0: You mentioned something interesting about how the Germans also mapped over, and that reminds me that... Very often we have, it's not uncommon for other countries to map, you know, foreign countries. The CIA had many maps of Moscow, for instance. But in terms of scale, was there ever a project anywhere in the world that
1: that matched that of this Soviet mapping project? No, I don't think so. I think that's um, something that we get asked quite a lot. And uh, from the mapping that we've seen, uh, it's very clear that there's nothing as comprehensive as this and I think there's actually a very good reason for that as well which is that when we compared we started to make some comparisons uh, between the Soviet city plans and those that were produced by uh, at the time what was called the the NGA so the National um, Geospatial Intelligence Agency or its forerunner NEMA uh, in the US and we looked at some Cities, we looked at one of those uh, in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia. Uh, Maribor and what you see there is a very much more economical if you like approach to mapping the city in terms of uh, the level of detail that's shown so the scale is different you also see for example that the roads are not named as comprehensively and the terrain isn't shown as comprehensively and so on and really that we think sort of reflects the different approaches to um, military strategy as well as the economic systems so for example the the U.S system of warfare is very much driven by um, airstrikes and, and surgical precision. So finding out the um, the key installations that you needed to perhaps knock out if you were wanting to plan an offensive assault, something like that, but you would do this from the air, so you'd make sure that you knew exactly where the key installations were. Whereas if you compare that with the Soviet plan, um, where you've got so much more detail, particularly about the terrain, that reflects more of the, the Soviet a military strategy was much more ground-led so all about ground forces and knowing for example accessibility uh, visibility what was going on on the ground so it's quite a, a key part of these city plans where it will explain not on the map itself but in the Spravka which is a descriptive essay that accompanies these plans it'll talk about the types of soil it'll talk about whether the rivers freeze in winter this sort of thing so it gives you a real detail about what is going on on the ground so as i say that that sort of reflects not only the military strategies but also maybe the economic strategies in that the u.s system much more uh (laughs) driven by the need to meet budgetary targets that sort of thing for personnel as opposed to soviet approach which is much more case of well let's map everything comprehensively Uh, Regardless of the number of people or the effort that goes into it. So, very different systems, uh, militarily and economically, that I think reflected in the mapping, funnily enough.
0: It reminds me that that I think it's, I've heard it being said that cartography is essentially an egocentric enterprise and that it reflects the worldviews and and biases of the cartographers. Um, And I I think this is a perfect example of how, you know, these Soviet worldviews and priorities, whether military or civil, influence the way these maps are produced.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right and I think it's it's very important to remember I think that you know the point of departure that we have with this this whole project is to see and be aware of that exact fact that the selection of features and how features are shown is a key element of cartography. So there's always a politics of selection and an aesthetics of selection when it comes to mapping something. So deciding what to show and how to show it, you know, tells you something about the values of that institution, the organization, but also the wider culture as well. And I think the fact that um, there's a very strong sense of uh, sort of utilitarian uh, or utilitarianism, if you like, that goes behind the selection of which features to show uh, is something that really comes across very strongly. If you look at, by comparison, Ordnance Survey maps and how they've developed over time, and you see more and more information that has been aligned towards the the leisure user, obviously Ordnance Survey needing to sell paper maps as well. This whole idea of gaining revenue within that free market economy system actually tells you something a little bit more about the imperatives behind that, uh, that map banking organisation. So I think there is something to be said about, as you were saying, Joshua, you know, that that idea of the values being reflected in the map and what that actually means.
0: And of course, you talked about how this is, this was essentially a very secretive enterprise. And up until the dissolution of the USSR, I think very few people knew about it. But do we know if countries like the UK or the US, did did they realise that they, they were being mapped or, if they did, did they comprehend the sheer scale of this endeavour? Almost certainly not.
2: We, we, I mean, the secrecy applies on this side as well as the other side. It's very difficult to ask that question. It's very difficult for anybody to give you that answer. Um, but I, it it would appear from conversations we've had, uh, yes, they would expect that spy planes would have picked up some strategically important stuff, some militarily important stuff, just as Uh, American spy planes were capturing images of uh, Russian rocket launching sites and so on. That's quite different from this comprehensive mapping uh, of civil infrastructure, let's call it. So I don't think there's any reason at all why the Americans or the Brits or anybody else would ever have mapped civil civil, uh, infrastructure in Russian cities.
1: Yeah and I think in terms of what we know and and what we knew when we knew it <laughs> I think again you know it's uh, it, it does seem that the Soviet topographic maps which um, some of them had a, a lower level of uh, security classification it seems that some of those were known about fairly soon after um, World War two so we have a there's a uh, it's publicly available. There is a U.S. Army field manual, which is about Soviet topographic map symbols from 1957. So we know that at least some of the Soviet mapping endeavour was known by then. But in terms of the city plans, uh, they seem to be pretty secret um, throughout the Cold War. And we it looks like certainly very, very little was known about them until 1993. Because that's when, as John says, at the International Cartographic Conference in Cologne, uh, a Latvian publisher started to offer these for sale, having found them in an abandoned depot close to Riga. So ultimately, that was probably the first time when these city plans uh, perhaps came to light. And I dare say a lot of people didn't didn't know what on earth these things were at the time. It's only really over the last few years that that their significance has has really come to light.
0: Um- that there's so many follow up questions that I want to ask, but we have to keep it a bit compact. So in the interest of time, I've got one last theme that I want to talk about related to this book. And that's the, the idea of obtaining this information, because as, as you mentioned earlier, these maps have such great detail and then there's nothing comparable um, in terms of foreign intelligence. And surely they weren't just copying these maps that were already in circulation. So how did they obtain such information?
2: Yeah, that's really, I think, the driving force behind the book is to examine. There's no simple answer. There's no single answer to that question at all. Multiplicity of sources is, is the only way to describe it. So you would say that they would have collected as much as possible documentation that, they, that they could. And, of course, in, in the West, stuff is freely available. You can go into a map shop and buy maps. You can go and buy guidebooks, tourist guidebooks in uh uh, trade directories or uh, railway timetables so the source of a lot of source information is freely available uh, it could have been collected it could have been transmitted to moscow or leningrad or wherever these maps were particular map was made uh, and that would have been used um, At the same time the development of spy satellites started so you've got then the possibility of aerial imagery and you can detect on the maps things that could only have been done from the air because of some a mistake let's say that uh, a misinterpretation of something from the air but you can't get names from the air and you can't get the depth of the water or the height of a bridge so there's you know it's a combination of many different pieces of information and in and, and any one map, the answers might be different on the neighbouring map. Whether there were people on the ground out with kind of spyglasses collecting information and notebooks, that's really hard to say. There's very little that we would find that you say that could only have been done by an agent on the ground. Most of what you find could conceivably have been done from published sources. But there are intriguing exceptions to that. And um one particular one that we, all, we often mention in the River Medway in Kent it, it was the dockyard where Chatham Dockyard where uh, nuclear submarines were being built during the Cold War and the there's suspiciously lot of information on the map about that area about the road bridge and the carrying capacity of the road bridge and the depth below the road bridge of the, of the water things that don't appear throughout most of the mapping. So that might be a might be an example of somebody on the ground collecting information, but other than that, there's no single answer. It's, it's a multiplicity.
1: Yeah, I think another um, point really that reinforces that is, you could say, well, if um, all of this information could have been gathered from uh, external sources without being on the ground, why was the level of detail not more systematically? Um, Obtained or consistent. So, as John says, you know, for the uh, the city plan of Chatham, where we've got carrying capacity of of a bridge and so on, there, you'd think, well, if that could be derived from uh, satellite, or um, obviously it couldn't be, but from other sources that were available, then why was that not more uh, systematically shown on the plan? So, there are, as John says, there are these anomalies that make you think, well, you know, perhaps where there were certain areas where there would have been a strategic need to map them, like. A, a submarine base that actually perhaps there were people that could at least maybe have been there maybe had a photograph taken in front of a bridge with uh, the carrying capacity written on you know there could be lots of different um, little anomalies like that but again you know as I think we're, we're always keen to point out there is so much that we don't know and perhaps are really unlikely to ever know and so it's hard to come up with any definite answers but actually um, you can deduce a fair amount I think from it and then speculate it.
2: We quote, we quote a nice story in the book uh, from Sweden of a group of uh, diplomats from the embassy who were out having a picnic one day, a group of them just happened to be adjacent to a naval base in Sweden, but there they were innocently picnicking. Well, you know, so that sort of possibly embassy staff would visit places and, and collect information. Possibly also, of course, there were exchange visits. Remember, you know, throughout the Cold War, I don't know, uh, groups of workers, groups of teachers would go on exchange visits from to Moscow or Leningrad and uh, they would host visits here. So informally and probably without realising it, uh, British people might have been saying things or Russian visitors might have been collecting information, ostensibly innocently. But it's all grist to the mill. Again, you can't prove any of that, but you can speculate the soft, let's call it soft information, you know, kind of background stuff, and you think, well, maybe that's come from conversations, or maybe that would just be too hard to collect and collate, so we don't know.
0: Hmm. And you see this project began proper with Stalin, um, and I presume it ended with the dissolution of the USSR. What is its legacy in terms of the, you know, the now Russian mapping project? Do we see its legacy being played out in the present day?
1: Yeah, good question. I think um, the key thing to remember, and going back to what we were saying earlier, is how comprehensive this mapping project really was. And that means that actually, for a lot of places around the globe, particularly perhaps uh, Central Asia, we've got detailed mapping of the terrain that actually is unmatched and unsurpassed by national mapping organisations themselves. So for a lot of the areas around the world that are more inaccessible, for example, or that don't have um, maybe the resources to conduct the level of survey that we might be used to, actually the Soviet mapping presents some really good uh, base data that can be used. And we quote in the book some examples of this, and how it's been used, and I suppose one of the most um, intriguing ones <laughs> is the use of the, uh, the Soviet maps and certainly the, the digital elevation models, so the three D terrain data that was derived from them, uh, for the for use by the US Army in the invasion of Afghanistan in uh, in two thousand and one. So it's very bizarre to sort of imagine that you've got. a you know, a, a former adversary, if you like, using their data because it was deemed to be more superior than the, the data that the US Army had at the time, obviously. And there are lots of instances like that. I mentioned Central Asia and another uh, a key application there is archaeology and the use of the maps because there's so much attention paid to the terrain and mapping the terrain that actually looking at, for example, burial mounds and, uh, and other earthworks, that's something that... Uh, is recorded on some of the topographic maps, the Soviet maps, and that means, of course, that you've got this fantastic resource um, that can be used. Another another application would be physical geography, the detailed mapping of glaciers, of course, geomorphology as well. And as we already mentioned, when we're talking about um, the continuity, if you like, on the map showing industry and disused railways, disused transportation... A lot of maps, of course, don't have that information. And that is another really useful resource in which the, uh, or type of information in which the the Soviet maps can provide a resource. So I think there's a huge legacy in terms of what was there historically, but also actually that can be used today as well. Another application would be humanitarian uh, applications. If you've got, for example, disaster relief, uh, that needs to take place in an area after natural hazard has struck. And perhaps, you know, if we're thinking about Haiti and the Port-au-Prince earthquake, where the National Mapping Organization didn't have sufficient uh, terrain information, again, OK, we've got OpenStreetMap that was used. But ultimately, if we're talking about the mapping of terrain that takes, as I said earlier, you know, a huge amount of time and effort... Um, the Soviet mapping had that. It was something that was that comprehensive. So there are lots of applications that we can think of. I think.
0: And from a historical perspective, how do you think the discovery of these maps can shape or have shaped the discourse surrounding the Cold War and the history of the USSR in general?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, something that I've been thinking about more recently is, is this whole idea, of course, of painting the Soviet Union as, as an economic, ideological, political failure. And, uh, we, you know, a lot of Cold War histories tend to do that. But of course, that was really before this story came to light. And you see the huge effort that went into creating this this global um, map that really surpassed everything else that, uh, if you like, the, the West was producing at the time. We tended to rely much more on imagery, and again, you could say that the... Um, Now, I guess the outcome of all of that, in a way, was the digital globes that we see, like Google Earth and so on, that are much more image-based. But, of course, with an image, you don't have interpretation, and that provides that level of expert interpretation that you need to understand what's going on on the ground. So the fact that the Soviet Union invested so much in mapping and in knowledge, you know, sort of suggests actually that they knew and were um, incredibly proficient in something that really in the West we had no idea about at the time. Again, this is why this is such an exciting story, because it's really uh, has so much potential to transform our understanding of the Soviet Union in the Cold War, I think. And not just military mapping, but also domestic mapping as well. Um, you know, we tend to look at the Soviet mapping of towns and cities, of their own towns and cities, of course, in a very dim light because they were deliberately distorted and so on. But actually, there were a lot of maps that were produced uh, for tourist purposes as well, that we uh, quite often tend to overlook for hikers and so on. So the story isn't quite so black and white as we, we might might be led to believe, I think. I'll just
2: also add, uh, Alex talked about the quality. It's not just the quality of the information on the maps, it's the quality of the actual paper and the actual printing. Physically, as, as artefacts, there are really good quality white paper 12-colour printing to so a very, very high degree of registration. And these were printed in huge numbers and transported across the nation. So the, 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 the physicality of production and distribution is very impressive. And again, we sort of, the stories of, you know, the, shop, the, the shelves in the shops were empty and uh, the tractor production was falsified. But these maps, and this was only a tiny, tiny part of the military budget, So, you know, the the effort that's gone in and the quality that was achieved, not just of the data, but of the physicality of the the piece of paper that was printed,
1: it's it's
2: astounding.
1: I think that's a very, very important point because... Again, we can look at this from a very sort of utilitarian perspective and uh, from a cartographic perspective, but from the perspective of appreciating the maps as works of art, I mean, that is something as well that has almost universal appeal. I mean, John mentioned the quality of the paper and so on, and that also meant that the colours are particularly striking. And, of course... Okay, we've already mentioned that you look at these places, these cities that are familiar. You see them in an unfamiliar way, and so on. But that also means that the colour scheme that's used is particularly striking. It's very, I, I like to think it's sort of very much kind of uh, so socialist realist, <laughs> very strong, positive, optimistic colours, that sort of thing. And I think you know, again, we we kind of forget perhaps that these are cartographers that were mapping these cities without having been there um, thousands of miles away. And actually, in a way, they were creating their own Soviet utopia, uh, and building that through cartography which was never realised. And yet it is ironic that, of course, now we look at these not just as um, curiosities, but also as works of art. And, uh, and that's something that certainly John and I are very keen to promote as well, that it's something that uh, these maps are something that really look fantastic on a wall, as well as something you would look at and compare and make minute comparisons <laughs> over the depth of uh, water and that sort of thing. So it's, it's worth bearing in mind that maps are works of art as well, I think.
0: Absolutely right. And going forward... What direction do you think this project that you've, that you've pioneered will be headed in the future?
2: Well, I've got a couple of points to pull up on that one. The, um, we, we've alluded to the fact that there's non-cartographic information on the maps, the marginalia. Two very important pieces of marginalia are the list of important objects and Spravka, or description. And we haven't really mined them so far. We've just accepted that that information's there. It takes a bit more effort to translate it and a bit more effort to try to understand it. But I think there's a major work to be done in interpreting all that uh, textual information uh, that, that accompanies the maps and, and uh, taking that one forward. And, and the other way, the other thing is what we've just been talking about uh, from an artistic perspective the Soviet realism, the use of colour, symbology how they maximize information i think we can do a lot or we're planning to, to take forward uh looked at from an artistic perspective looked at not as a scientific project but an artistic project and uh, that for me is the two very exciting ways forward
1: yeah i think um john's absolutely right and of course what we focused on really until now are the Military maps and the topographic mapping and the city maps, but of course it's very important to bear in mind, as John said much earlier on in the uh, in the podcast, that actually uh, the tourist maps as well are you know works of art in their in their own right, and often they're inter- uh, overlooked. So actually, I think there's a lot of work to do that uh, that we have, and certainly others as well, I'm sure, to uh, really promote the the breadth of the Soviet mapping enterprise. That it's comprehensive, certainly from a military perspective, but but actually in terms of the broad range of uh, documents that are uh, maps that are produced, that actually there is something about understanding, of course, what maps meant to that particular society. And I think, actually, also looking ahead um, and how the mapping of the world that uh, the Soviet Union engaged in, actually, there's a lot that cartographers can learn from that because, actually, the Soviet Union met and addressed particular challenges difficult challenges of how you actually symbolize features and how you show various uh, themes together on a map that actually still have a lot of design relevance today so I think it's you know i would be keen to point out that yes these are historical documents yes they're works of art and so on but actually you know let's not forget that there was a lot of um, intellectual effort that went into these maps in terms of overcoming these difficulties of how you actually map the world which is something uh, that, that no one has really ever done before or since as comprehensively so, I think it's it's worth bearing that in mind. We've got a, a special issue of the Cartographic Journal coming out later this year that uh, that hopefully will incorporate many of these different uh, angles and also many different papers on those angles, from tourist maps to the military maps. So, we're looking forward to seeing that coming out too.
0: That's wonderful, and it's a very nice note to end on. You know, positive outlook for the future of, of research into these maps. Well, before I end, I do have one final question that I pose to every guest that comes on this show and feel free to take it in whichever order you decide Um, if you could interview someone anyone for their new book in history who would that be?
1: Yeah, I think uh, a fantastic book that I've seen recently is uh, Richard Ovenden's Burning the Books, where he's talking about really the suppression of knowledge. So Richard Ovenden's the uh, uh, Bodleys librarian, of course, at the bodley Libraries in Oxford. And I think he's brought a, a unique and uh, fascinating perspective on how knowledge has been suppressed over time and really what the implications of suppressing knowledge uh, are in the future. And I think there are a lot of links um, between knowledge and mapping, of course, and uh, obviously that link between knowledge and power. So, uh, I think there is a very clear association there. But yes, I think that would be an excellent uh, author and book to uh, to interview.
2: Okay, for for me, it's a book that's just recently been re- relaunched, and I went to the I went to the uh, relaunch recently, and I've just put it down. <laughs> I can't find put it! It's it's by Tom King, and it, here it is. And it's called Thames Estuary Trail. And Tom King uh, is a, he, he was, I think he's probably retired now, uh, a journalist in a small town, in South End in, in, in Essex. And 20 years ago, he, he, he's a keen walker. He's a keen uh, chatter to people. A, a journalist always gets a story. So this guy was a keen walker. And the Thames Estuary is one of these areas that's kind of forgotten. It's the back of beyond. Nobody ever goes there. It's not easy to walk there. And he, designed, he devised this idea of a trail along the Thames Estuary. He would walk from the outer edge, the eastern edge of London to the sea, and he would just walk and he would talk to people. And he produced a really wonderful book. And that was about 20 years ago, and it's just been republished and he's brought it up to date. And it's absolutely delightful in the way he, he just meets people, he gets a conversation, he gets a story out of them, and he relates it to where we are and what we're doing and what he can see, and he really he takes you along with him. Uh, so it's a delightful, uh, delightful book. Tom, Tom, and what he's done this year to extend it, he's taken it right along the Kent coast. So we go all the way from the northern limits of the Thames Estuary in uh, Shuburiness uh, to uh, North Foreland on uh, the North Kent coast. That's a lovely book.
0: Wonderful, and surely a, a man after your own heart, John. Exactly. I mean, Abbott hiker. A totally. uh-huh. and, and that's good news because, Alex, you, you mentioned Richard Ovendon's Burning the Books, and he was on New Books in History back in December last year, so if there are any listeners who aren't tired after listening to an hour and 15 minutes of us talking, you can head over to the podcast and give it a listen. Excellent. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us today, both okay. of you, John and Alex, you've been Uh, an absolute pleasure as guests, and I really enjoyed our conversation. If there ever is a sequel to this book, or if there's anything you want to add, feel free to come back. We'd love to have you on to have a chat about it. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Very enjoyable chat. Thanks, Joshua. Excellent. Thank you. Well, on that note, thanks for your time, and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History.